Well, hey, good morning. Great to see if you got your Bible. I'd like to invite you to turn with me today to John's Gospel. John chapter 18 is where we're going to be. And we're, we're looking back to our series called Word Made Flesh in the Gospel of John. And we're doing that just in time for uh, the Easter season, the cross and the resurrection. And so we're going to be in, in John chapter 18 uh, this morning. Pastor Rod is leading a team in Israel. And so that's pretty exciting. We're going to be going to Israel as well in uh, in John, so it's, it's it's cheaper, okay. So just, just think of it that way, uh, but a little less exciting. Uh, I want to take you back to January the seventeenth, two thousand eighteen. January seventeenth, two thousand eighteen, Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Uh, Brianna and I, as we do every night, we head to bed at nine o five p.m. We stay awake an extra five minutes just to prove that we're not old. 9.05 p.m. And uh, I sleep until my normal time about 3 a.m. And that's when I get up, uh, not to, to start my day, but because I am getting old, and that's when I need to use the restroom. And so 3 a.m., I, I get out of bed, I don't have my glasses on, and I, I wander to the, to the bathroom, and I see this exterior wall, exterior window of our house, I see what look like Christmas lights, and that might not seem weird at all. I mean, January, but it, but it is weird because I'm way too lazy to put up Christmas lights. And I see these, these nice red and blue lights, and I, I don't have my glasses on. I can't tell what it is, but I go and get my glasses, and I have a picture of kind of what it looked like here. Next slide. It looks kind of like this, like a lot of these lights. And so I get my glasses, and I look out the window, and I see what looks like about half of the Bartlesville police force in my yard. <laughs> there are two squad cars in my driveway. There are cops. There are two, two more squad cars right in front of my house. Another squad car blocking off the road in this direction, blocking off the road in this direction. And my first thought is, like, what did my kids do now? <laughs> what the, like, and I go back to you know, Brianna. I'm like, how do, how do I break this? You know, it's like... Honey, um, the cops have us surrounded. Um, just, like, do you have a side business I don't know about? <laughs> and, and so I, I look out the window. I'm like, what in the world is going on? I see a guy in the middle of my yard with his hands like this. And the cops are all around him. So I'm like, well, at least it's not me, right? But this is the strangest story. And I'm going to come back to this story at the end of the message. You got to stay awake, all right? <laughs> I wake up at 3 a.m., you can stay awake. Uh, here's the question before we finish the story. Um, have you ever found yourself in the midst of a situation, in the midst of a story that you did not expect? I mean, a situation, a story that makes you, and I sort of like pinched my, like, is this real? Am I in a movie? Have you ever found yourself in the midst of a story that you did not expect to be a part of. And it could be a good story. It could be a bad story. It could be a story of divorce. And you said, till death do we part. And it didn't work out that way. It could be a story of starting over in your career, a story of starting over in, in terms of where you live, a story of being a parent for the first time to a newborn who suddenly morphed into a teenager, a parent to a child of, of special needs, a parent caring for an aging parent in the midst of a busy season of life. It could be a, a good story, 
a story of falling in love when you didn't expect it, a story of achieving a dream that you never anticipated, and you sort of pinch yourself like, I didn't expect to be a part of this situation. And there's a sense of kind of vertigo. There's a sense of almost like, what is, is, is this real? Uh, and that's actually what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about finding yourself in a story that you don't expect to be in. And it's a story in some ways like the one that I opened with. It's a story late at night. The authorities arrive. The disciples have been sleeping. And there's an arrest. It's the arrest of Jesus. And I want to ask this question, where are you in that story, that story that you, you're like, I wasn't there, I'm not in Israel, I wish I was, but I'm here. A, a, a story you didn't expect to, to be in. And so if you've got your Bible, John's Gospel, chapter 18, beginning in, in verse 1, it says, it says this. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. And now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And so Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus they bound him and brought him first to Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, that year. This is God's word. I want to focus on a question. This is the scene we, we just spoke of, this late night, officials arrive, arrest scene. And I want to focus on a question that I think is a crucial question in the passage. And we know it's important because Jesus asks it twice. And it's the title of this message. It's, it's this question, who is it, who is it that you seek? Who is it that you want? He asks it twice. And, and the people who come, they give the right answer. Like, we want Jesus. We are seeking Jesus. And one of the things that strikes me is Jesus often asks people about their wants. He often asks us about our wants. He, he says to a person he's about to heal, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, he, he says elsewhere to somebody that, again, he, he wants to, to heal. He says, do you want to be made well? 
And Jesus asked these people in the same way, who is it that you want? Everybody in this passage is seeking Jesus. And everybody in this passage, when they're asked what they want or who they want, gives the right answer to the sort of Sunday school question. I want Jesus. I'm here for Jesus. If somebody asks you, why are you here today? That's the right answer. The answer to every question, I always tell my students in every class, the answer is always Jesus. It's just, what's the question? (laughs) Who is it that you want? Everybody is seeking Jesus, but here's the key thing. Their motives require transformation. They're seeking Jesus, but many of them are seeking him for the wrong reasons. And even those who are followers of Jesus, like Peter, we're going to look at in a second, his actions and his understanding of who Jesus is, is in need of transformation. Everybody in the passage is seeking Jesus, but their motives are in need of transformation. And so I want to look at three groups of people. And I, my, my assumption, my thesis is that you belong in one of these categories, maybe more of these categories. If you've got your update, I've got basically three parts of this message. We're going to look at the soldiers and the servants. And then secondly, we're going to look at Judas and the religious leaders. And then thirdly, we're going to look at Peter and his sword. All three of these groups are seeking Jesus But all three of these groups need their motives or their actions or their understandings of Jesus to be be transformed. Who is it that that you seek? Let's start with the soldiers and the servants. The soldiers and the servants. One of the things I think is that some people approach Jesus, they seek Jesus with a sense of duty with a sense of detached duty. I just do this because I'm supposed to. Why were the soldiers and the servants, this guy named Malchus, who's a household slave, why is he in this story? In some ways, the worst and best story that's ever been told, the, the killing of Jesus. It's because, look, I'm a servant. It's just my duty to be here. If you ask the soldiers and the servants, why are you there? We're just following orders. We're just following orders. And that's a famous line that sort of was made famous by the Nuremberg trials. If you remember the Nuremberg tribunals after World War II, in a 1962 letter as kind of a last-ditch effort for clemency, Holocaust organizer Adolf Eichmann wrote that he and the other low-level officers were, quote, just following orders. I'm going to butcher this German. Befel ist Befel. Orders are orders. Soldiers follow orders. Just following orders as they participated in the arrest and the murder of millions of Jews. In that same year, 1962, a famous psychologist guy by the name of Stanley Milgram uh, from Yale conducted a series of experiments that were basically trying to test how far ordinary people, good people, would go if they were asked or ordered to do something that was incredibly hurtful or harmful to another person. Some of you are probably familiar with that. And the results showed that almost anyone was capable of great evil 
if an authority figure asked them to do it out of a sense of, out of a sense of duty. And so maybe a question is, have you ever done something that was wrong out of a sense of duty? You ever done that? Have you ever done something that was wrong out of a sense of duty? And here's a more important question. Have you ever done something that was right out of a mere sense of duty? How many of us attend church? How many of us are seeking Jesus, to use that phrase, just because it's just, look, it's what you do in the Bible Belt. Are you a good person? You go to church. It's your, it's your, look, I grew up as a pastor's kid. Even when I had the flu, I had to come to church. I had to lay in my dad's office. Even at my lowest ebb, I couldn't escape the sermon. It was a sense of duty. That, like, how many of you have ever done something wrong out of a sense of duty? How many of you have ever done something right just because you feel like it's what you're supposed to, to do? Many people, here's my, here's my assumption, many people approach Jesus like the soldiers and the servants in this passage. Just, I'm just following orders. We sing to Jesus. We pray to Jesus. We attend church. We call ourselves Christians, but we do it in many cases just out of a detached sense of duty. And when Jesus asks them, who do you want? They have the right answer but it's not because they have a deep affection for Jesus. There's an, a, a famous illustration that a pastor uses called the dutiful roses illustration. And Valentine's Day was, was recently, and he says, suppose a man approaches his wife, as I did on Valentine's Day, with roses, and, she, and he gives her the rose. The roses are spectacular. They're beautiful and he says, here you go. And she says, thank you. And his response is, it's my duty. <laughs> it's what society expects in the Bible Belt. Will she be pleased with dutiful roses? No, no, no. We will pray for you later at your memorial service. <laughs> Maybe that's you. If you're really honest, why are you here today? Who is it that you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. But you say, I do it more out of a sense of duty. I come before Jesus this Lenten season, not because I deeply love him or because I deeply hate him. I come to church, to prayer, to faith, because I was told at some point that that's what you should do. And if that's you today, then the proper thing to do is to say, that's me in the story. I'm with the soldiers and the servants. And the application or the prayer is this. Maybe this prayer is for you. Jesus, transform my motives from duty to delight, from apathy to gratitude, from attendance to worship. The soldiers and the servants attended this scene late at night with the arresting officials, but they weren't there to worship. Jesus transformed my motives from, from duty to delight.
Soldiers and servants, second group. Maybe you're not in the soldiers and the servant category. Bethel is Bethel, whatever that is. Maybe you're in the category, or maybe you know somebody in the category of Judas and the religious leaders. Judas and the religious leaders. Some people approach Jesus with a sense of resentment, with a sense of fear, and with, with angry motives angry motives. I wrote out a list of, we talked about resentment. I wrote out a list of all the people I resent, and I will now read that list. No, I thought that would be an awkward moment, right? I want to focus on that first one. We could talk a lot about fear. We could talk a lot about anger. There are a lot of angry people today, amen? amen. But I want to focus on that first word. The word is resentment. Resentment. And and one question that often gets brought up this time of year as we look to the cross is, why did Judas do it? Why did Jesus, he's a disciple of Jesus, why did he, was it just for money? It says that he loved money. It says that he used to steal from the the coin purse. Was was he trying to force Jesus' hand to finally rise up and be the kind of Messiah that he wanted him to be? Was it Satan? The Bible says that Satan entered in to, to Judas at one point. Now, I don't know the answer. The Bible doesn't tell us explicitly the answer, but if I had to make my, my case, my biggest argument would center around this, this one word. I think he did it out of resentment. I think he came to resent the kind of Messiah that Jesus was choosing to be. That his plan wasn't the plan that Judas approved of, and he grew to resent Jesus. Jesus turned out not to be the kind of Messiah that he wanted. And resentment, psychologists, historians would tell us, is a dangerous emotion. It's, It's dangerous for marriages. It's dangerous for countries. Uh, a famous psychologist, he says that the motivation that drives the commission of the worst human atrocities is always a resentment-filled rage. Resentment drives these, these horrible, horrible things. How many of you have ever done something you regret? You've been a part of a story you regret because of resentment. Yeah, bingo, me too. Right? I won't read my list. Resentment is something that's driving Judas, and it's something that's driving the religious leaders. And we could ask this question, like, what drives resentment? We talked about what maybe is driving it in this passage for Judas, but what drives resentment for us? And I did some work this week and sort of delved into a little bit of the psychological literature, a little bit of the other sort of suggestions. Here's, here's a big driver of of resentment. Number one is trauma. Trauma. Especially childhood trauma. Where you've, you've, un, you've undergone something that should not have happened. Someone did something to you or something happened to you that was wrong that should never have happened. And it fuels this sense of anger and resentment. Maybe it God maybe a certain type of person, maybe a certain class of people. But the thing that for you is driving this resentment as you come before Jesus today and he asks, who is it that you seek, is, is trauma. Something painful 
in, in your past. Here's a, a second driver of resentment. I always call it being overly plugged in to news and social media. Amen? Amen? <laughs> One of the things that the big tech companies, the social media companies have figured is that almost nothing drives user time, eyeballs, ad revenue, like outrage. Outrage will keep you plugged in, which sells dish soap. <laughs> but the cost of dish soap is way more than $3.99. The cost of the dish soap is resentment. It's this sort of seething sense of anger at those people out there. And resentment is driven not just by trauma, but it's driven in some cases by us being overly plugged into all that stuff going on out there outside of our living rooms in, in, in the world. A third thing that's driving resentment for some of us, comparison. Comparison. And that connects as well with social media. Like, why is my life not like her life or, or his life? Why does my skin not look nearly as youthful? Like, there's an app for that, right? There is a sense of resentment that, that is fueled by comparison. Somebody once famously said, not me, comparison is the thief of joy. We compare ourselves to other disciples. You don't think Judas did that? What? Why is Peter getting all this FaceTime? Peter's a moron. <laughs> Why is John getting... I'm in charge of the money. I should have a... You know, there's a sense of resentment that's driven by comparison. And then lastly, there's a sense of resentment, I think, that's fueled when we give way to negativity. Negativity doesn't have to be fueled by social media or the news or even by comparison specifically, but just a sense of like, that's just, I'm, you know, I'm just frustrated. I'm, I'm negative in my outlook. And so the takeaway is that it's possible. One of the things that Judas teaches us is that it's possible for even disciples to grow resentful of God's people or God's plan. And this sense of resentment fuels a motivation to come before Jesus that is, that is wrong. Maybe some of you would own that today. You would say, I'm here today, but I've kind of grown resentful. And my answer is still the Sunday school answer. Who is it that you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. But I'm here with this sort of bubbling up sense of anger or, or frustration or resentment. Maybe your prayer is this, the takeaway. God, show me. Show me where, where my resentment lies, where I've grown resentful, so that I approach Jesus with right motives and with the right heart. The, the soldiers and the servants, Judas and the religious leaders, and then thirdly, and I want to spend some time on this third person, because in many ways he's my favorite. Uh, I called him a moron, but that was unkind. I, I'll apologize when I see him. <laughs> Peter and Peter's sword. Some people approach Jesus with a misplaced zeal 
that ends up hurting the very people that Jesus came to save. Some people approach Jesus with a misplaced zeal or passion that hurts those that Jesus wants to help. And that's, that's Peter. It says this in verse 10. You can read this along with me. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He asks this question like, what's a fisherman doing with a sword? Right? He clearly has not been to the gun safety course or the sword safety course. Like he, he's waving, he accidentally gets an ear when he's going for a head, which I suppose is good. The miracle would have been better if Jesus put the head back on. But like, what's a fisherman doing with a sword? And the answer is, Jesus told him to get it. If you read in the other Gospels, he says just before this, Jesus says, if you don't have a sword, sell your very cloak and buy one. Right? Peter's a very literal dude. He's like, done. <laughs> Bought a sword. And we're sometimes super hard on Peter because, you know, he denies Jesus three times. He oftentimes sticks his foot in his mouth. But in this one case, he was trying to do the very thing that he told Jesus that he was going to do. And that is, I don't care if everybody else abandons you. I will never abandon you. I will fight for you. And here he is swinging the sword that Jesus told him to buy. And what does he get for it? Jesus yells at him and tells him to put the sword away. And another, another gospel account, he says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And here's my theory. Jesus just straight up sets him up. <laughs> Jesus wants to teach a lesson about how his kingdom works. And so he sets up a scenario. You might say this, is, this seems a little shady, but I think Jesus did it. He sets up a scenario that allows him to teach a crucial, crucial lesson. That his kingdom does not function like the kingdoms of this world. That it will not come at the point of a sword, it will come at the point of a cross. And he sets up Peter to teach him a crucial lesson about the kingdom. Peter has a zeal that in some ways is good, and in other places, in other ways, is, is misplaced. He ends up hurting somebody, this, this lowly slave, Malchus, a person that Jesus actually loves. Have you ever done something with a misplaced zeal that ends up hurting somebody? Amen. Maybe even a misplaced Christian zeal. Right? You're going out onward, Christian soldiers. We're going to confront the darkness with our swinging swords and our keyboards. We, we have a misplaced, I have in some cases, a misplaced zeal that ends up hurting somebody. Peter wants to help Jesus. Peter wants to defend Jesus. Peter wants to stop the bad men from doing bad things, but he thinks Jesus' kingdom uses the weapons of this world. And so he ends up doing violence to someone Jesus wants to help. Many of us adopt the tactics 
of the world to defend the safety of the kingdom. Amen? We choose the tactics of the world to defend the safety of the kingdom. The, the famous Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon has a, a famous, a famous um, statement or quotation about people who constantly defend the Bible's truthfulness without actually just preaching the word and letting the word go out and do its work. And he calls it defending the lion. I have a picture of a lion behind a cage. And Spurgeon says this, he says, there seems to me to have been twice as much done in some ages in defending God's word as in proclaiming it. But if the whole of our strength will henceforth go to the proclaiming and spreading of it, we may leave it pretty much to defend itself. He says, I don't know whether you see that lion. It is very distinct before my eyes. A number of people advanced to attack him while a host of us would defend him. Spurgeon says this, pardon me if I offer a quiet suggestion. Open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. Why? They are gone. He no sooner goes forth in his strength than his assailants flee. Spurgeon says, God's word is like this lion. It is powerful. It is sharper, to use a line that resonates with our passage, than any two-edged sword. And if we spend all of our time trying to defend it, and none of our time simply proclaiming it, living it, letting it out of its cage, then we actually do a disgrace to the lion. The lion can take care of himself. And that doesn't mean that there's never a time to defend truth. It doesn't mean that there's never a time to, to give an answer for the hope that you have. But there are cases in which our zeal ends up hurting those whom Jesus loves. I, I heard a story of a famous apologist, a guy who would go to college campuses and debate um, non-Christians and skeptics and, and atheists and people from other religions. And there's, I think there's a place for that. I think it can be well and good. But this account was, was written by a, another Christian apologetics person. And he said, it was interesting. There was a questioner that, that had this, this really difficult question for, for the Christian teacher, for the apologist. And instead of just answering it, the Christian leader intentionally made the questioner feel and look stupid. And all of the Christians there, the answer was so powerful. And he used, you know, the language we use, he smashed him, he destroyed him, he, he pulverized him. And they walked away feeling very, very victorious. And another man said he heard two women who had come, just come to the event on a whim, and I'll sanitize what they said. They said, I don't care if the SOB is right. I still hate his guts. It's possible to desire to defend the safety of the kingdom with the tactics of the world 
and for our zeal to actually hurt those people that Jesus came to save. Maybe you say, you know what, That's, I've, I've been there. I'm not in the position of the, the slaves and the soldiers or the, of Judas and the religious leaders. I'm in the position of Peter and I've got good intentions, but, I've, but I need to temper my zeal. Maybe you could say it this way. God, would you mix my zeal with love for those who need you? so that we combine grace with truth. John says earlier in this this same book that Jesus was full of grace and truth, that he marries these two together. It's never just hard truth without without grace. Mix my my zeal with, with love so that I'm not hurting people that Jesus came to save. Here's how it ends. Regardless of our motives, regardless of whether you find yourself in the position of Judas and the religious leaders or or the slaves and the servants, the soldiers, or even in the position of Peter, regardless of our motives, the story ends in the same way. Jesus takes the place of the guilty. He says, look, who are you looking for? Jesus, they say, he said, well, then let these other guys go. And Jesus goes to the cross in the, in the place of the guilty, not just in the place of the religious leaders and Judas, but in the place of you and me. And I want to return to, you know, 3 a.m. January, you thought I forgot, didn't you? 17th, 2018. And it was, a, it was a strange day. There had been an officer involved shooting in Bartlesville earlier that day. That's the only reason I remember the date, because I was able to look it up. And the last thing I wanted to do was just, you know, barge out onto the porch. Hey, guys, what's going on? You know, uh, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and I slowly, I turned the porch light on and I waited. <laughs> and then in my fuzzy slippers, I went out on the porch <laughs> and said, um, what's going on, guys? <laughs> and the officers told me, said, well, we got a call. These, I didn't see there was a gray sedan pulled all the way up to my garage door, basically touching my garage door. And there were people inside, and the guy in the yard had been driving. And they said, we've been getting calls. People have been breaking into houses, breaking into yards. And as soon as we came to check it out, they pulled into your driveway. And so that's what we're, that's what we're doing. And, and I said what I think anybody would say. I said, well, thanks, you know, glad you're here. They said, you might want to check if you're missing anything in the backyard. I said, just broken toys, they can have it, you know. I hope they took something. Uh, but here's what I didn't do. Here's what I didn't do. And say, you know what, take me instead. Let those guys go. I would love to accept a, uh, you know, burglary charge, whatever else they've done to, just put it on my tab. And then crawled into the squad car and went away not to a few months in jail, but to a death sentence. I didn't do that. Jesus did. The other scene, next slide, 
the scene we started with, late night, authorities arrive. The gospel is this. Jesus takes the place of the guilty. Regardless of your motives, your past actions, your future actions, Jesus stands in for the condemned. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay his life down for his friends, but not just his friends, for his enemies. And that's the only thing, if we're really honest, that can transform not just our motives, but our lives and our eternal destiny. Let's pray.